0: You're listening to Heart Sounds from the Pulse of Cardiology. Hello from New York. Welcome to the July episode of Heart Sounds. I'm Caitlin Cox, the news editor of TCTMD. I'm filling in this month as your guest host, while our managing editor, Shelly Wood, is somewhere in the trees or up a mountain or on the ocean somewhere, hopefully not thinking too much about heart disease. We've hit the summer doldrums for sure with heat advisories and subway delays around here in the city but it's also the season of getting out of town. In a few weeks, I myself am headed to a cabin in the Catskills with my family, and I bet you all are doing some of the same. Cardiology findings always seem to trickle out more slowly this time of year, maybe in anticipation of the fall meetings, or maybe because everyone's out enjoying the sun. But that gives us on the TCTMD News team time to really dig into what good patient care means and how cardiologists can provide it. It's a chance to talk to new people and learn new things. Here are a few of my favorite stories from the past month. In late June, Michael O'Reardon wrote up a study from JAMA Internal Medicine that examined how to triage patients who present to the emergency department with chest pain. Turns out that in such patients, further cardiac testing within 30 days is tied to an increase in invasive coronary angiography and revascularization, but not a reduction in hospital admissions for acute MI. The results suggest that routine cardiac testing in chest pain patients without evidence of ischemia may raise resource utilization without improving outcomes. Here's what lead author Alexander Sandu of the Veterans Affairs Palo Alto Healthcare System in California told Mike
1: We didn't find evidence of an association with a reduction in acute MI admissions. I think that this currently supports shared decision making with patients that the emergency department provider or the cardiologist it's called talks to patients about how there's you know not necessarily great evidence about whether they need to stay in the hospital for a stress test Uh um, or if they can go home and follow up at at a later time and I think that that decision has to be made taking into context the patient's preferences the providers and Understanding of that individual patient's risk um, and and any other kind of important patient-to-patient factors.
0: Todd Neal reported this month on an ever-challenging topic: racial disparities in healthcare. This time, though, there was a twist. In contrast to earlier research showing that black patients tend to fare worse. A new analysis published in JAMA Cardiology shows no major differences in post-PCI outcomes between black and white patients treated within the U.S. Veterans Affairs system. After accounting for differences in baseline characteristics, of which there are many, black patients were not more likely to die within the first year. Todd asked senior author Jay Geary of Corporal Michael J. Creshen's VA Medical Center and the University of Pennsylvania what the takeaway should be for clinicians. In short, better prevention.
1: What should be the takeaway here for clinicians? Is there something that that can help them manage their patients better? The thing to point out is, honestly, the difference between the unadjusted and the the adjusted outcomes. Uh, If you look, the unadjusted outcomes still were worse for black patients. Black patients had roughly a 7% mortality at one year, and white patients had uh, roughly a 6%. So there's about 1.2% difference in mortality unadjusted at one year. And obviously that was attenuated as soon as we took into account the fact that black patients had you know more comorbidities, more hypertension, more diabetes, and more, uh, and a higher likelihood of presenting with acute coronary syndrome. So, what we're seeing is that um, when we're trying to kind of address health equity from a cardiovascular standpoint, from a coronary disease standpoint, in these patients, uh, at least in the VA, it seems like the health equity uh, conversation uh, probably shouldn't be starting at the cath lab door. It has to move backwards um, towards primary prevention and secondary prevention efforts. Which are not being delivered equivalently among the two, if there's still persistent, you know, discrepancies within their risk factors. So the risk factor reduction does not look equal between the two walking in the door.
0: For the first time, TCTMD had a reporter at the annual Society of Cardiovascular Computed Tomography meeting. While there, Yaël Maxwell learned the ins and outs of CT, writing several stories that speak to day-to-day practice. One focused specifically on coronary artery calcium testing, exploring its value in helping cardiologists know whether to get more aggressive with CAD prevention in certain patients. Most SCCT participants seemed to agree that it has a role, but views diverged over when and how often to retest. Yael interviewed Karam Nasir at Baptist Health South Florida in Miami, who presented at the meeting, to find out more. Nasir said CAC testing offers a lot of strengths over traditional approaches to risk stratification.
2: It's time that we should let the risk scores and risk factor-based management rest in peace. It served its purpose for the last 50 years. Now in 2017, we have an ability to look at the actual disease with ease of spending like $75 to $100, a test that takes almost two to three minutes. Mm -hmm. It has a radiation dose of almost equivalent to a mammogram. And provides the most precise insight of what your actual risk is, so you can tailor the treatment.
0: Then there's the evergreen favorite, bioresorbable scaffolds. Every podcast, we seem to bring you an update on the Absorb BVS. This month, Shelley Wood covered a large meta-analysis, combining seven randomized comparisons of the Absorb scaffold and the Zion's Everolimus-eluting stent with data out to two years. And, like in other analyses that have come before, the metallic stent came out the winner. Among the more than 5,500 patients randomized, those who received the absorb device saw a 52% increase in the risk of MI and a 40% increase in ischemia driven TLR. The risk of scaffold thrombosis with absorb was threefold higher over the two year period and a sobering tenfold higher between years one and two. According to editorialists, the main study results, along with a number of well powered sub analyses, beyond a reasonable doubt that the absorbed BVS is inferior to the metallic DES. The number needed to harm, they note, is 47 for the combined device-specific endpoint used by the authors, cardiac mortality, target vessel MI, and ischemia-driven TLR. It's 61 for device thrombosis. As such, the editorialists say, it cannot be anticipated that the potential long-term benefits of a stent that disappears will offset this excess in adverse events that occur within the first two years. Shelley bounced that conclusion off Greg Stone, senior author of the meta-analysis.
1: That I strongly disagree with. I thought it was a good editorial, but I do disagree with that statement because that's why it's important to look at the absolute differences in risk. So the absolute differences in risk, depending on which you know, event you're talking about, is one or two out of 100 patients. And we know that metallic drug-eluting stents from years at least 3 to 10 and probably for the life of the patient have about a two to three percent per year rate of target lesion failure. So if absorb can capture back or if a bioresorable scaffold in general can capture back, um, one percent or a half percent of those events on a per year basis, uh, then it will not be many years at all before it makes up that early difference. But that being said, we certainly would like to have a scaffold that's as safe in the early phase as a metallic drug living stem.
0: For all of us at TCTMD, one of the most rewarding things about summer is the chance to work with the recipient of our Jason Kahn Fellowship in Medical Journalism. We started in honor of our former news editor, Jason Kahn, who is a great mentor and friend. He passed away in 2014. The program is now in its third year, and it gives us the opportunity to share what our news team knows both about reporting and about transcardiology. Our 2017 fellow is Ashley Lyles who's originally from Detroit and is now earning her master's in journalism at New York University. And she's doing great. We saved the last few minutes of this podcast to let Ashley give it a whirl. Take it away, Ashley.
2: Thanks, Caitlin. That's right. I'm currently a journalism student in NYU's science, health, and environmental reporting program. I'll be entering my last semester of the program in September. One of the news assignments I had here at TCTMD was to take a deeper look at a paper on cocaine and the heart. This got me thinking more broadly about illicit and recreational drugs and the heart. What are the drugs that impact the heart? How much knowledge and experience do cardiologists have when it comes to recognizing symptoms of certain exposures? One of the first people I spoke with was cardiologist Rachel Bond, who told me about an experience she had as a cardiologist on call when a 38-year-old man staggered into the busy New York City Hospital ED complaining of an elephant sitting on his chest. The man was taken for an urgent ECG, which showed ST elevation. But apart from high blood pressure and a history of tobacco use, he had no other risk factors. Pressed by doctors, however, the man came clean about a possible cause of his cardiac symptoms. Here's what Dr. Bond had to say. He did
3: endorse at the time that he was. A uh, active uh, cocaine user. Um, He used it uh, roughly about once, he said, every two
2: weeks or so. Knowing what effects illicit drugs can have on the cardiovascular system is important, especially in cases like this one. But according to Bond, cardiology training doesn't specifically include a focus on recreational drug use or addiction. So she suggests cardiologists use the drug information they receive during general medicine and internal medicine training. And when it comes to marijuana use, many questions still remain unanswered. Sheila Wykes is a certified addiction registered nurse and the director of substance abuse services at the Marshfield Clinic in Wisconsin. She often sees signs of drug use, especially marijuana, when treating patients. Take a listen to my conversation with Ms. Wykes.
3: There needs to be a lot more research because the fact that most of the marijuana is smoked, there's still not a lot of it that is um, in food products or some, but most of it is is smoked. So then you have run into all of the issues with anything that you're smoking, and I still don't think they've done enough research even with the negative smoking outcomes related to THC. Okay. And again, depending on where it's raised and what it was sprayed with, because um, here in Wisconsin, it's not legal, so we don't have the uh, legalized rose. So that means they're getting stuff out of uh, wherever, and you don't know. You, you really don't know what has been. It's been put into it or, or exposed to. The other thing we see up here, along with marijuana, is uh, what they call pole. It's potpourri. Um It's the synthetic THCs, and that can be any number of things sprayed with any number of chemicals. So that that's the challenge out here with um, people who are using various substances. You never quite know what you have in any given substance. So when they come in presenting in a medical emergency, you know, it, it's like you're, you're doing um, a CSI. You're trying to figure out and they may not be forthcoming.
2: With so many questions unsettled, the best thing physicians can do is rely on guidelines on how to treat cardiovascular events following drug use. Bond recommends turning to the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association for updated guidelines as certain drugs become more frequently used among the public. I hope you'll check out my whole feature on TCTMD, as well as other stories I've worked on this summer. Next up for me, finishing my degree and then on to medical school. Yep, my plan is to be both a physician and a journalist. Wish me luck.
0: So those are the TCTMD highlights for July. Check out all our coverage online, especially Fellows Forum, where Yael Maxwell is welcoming a new roster of bloggers and offering fresh guidance for cardiologists and training. Over the rest of the summer, we'll continue rolling out additional in-depth features as well as our daily news stories. We're gearing up for the ESC Congress in Barcelona, which starts in late August. Shelley, Mike, and Todd will all be there. And you didn't get a chance to hear from Laura McEwen in this month's episode, that's in part because she's hard at work mapping out some of our feature story plans for the TCT Daily, which brings our online TCTMD coverage to life in print every year at the TCT meeting. In 2017, that'll be taking place in a new city, Denver, Colorado. As always, give a shout if you have any feedback on our site or ideas for stories. You can find me and the rest of the news team via our bios on TCTMD or track us down on Twitter. Thanks for tuning into Heart Sounds. Have a great month.